Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 970. To kick off this week's show, David Lorelo welcomes Katie Crawl, development coach for the Boston Red Sox. Katie has an impressive baseball resume, having already worked as a baseball operations analyst for the Cincinnati Reds, as well as in the commissioner's office. And she shares with David what her path has been like and how her role with the Red Sox differs from the ones she's had before. Katie also tells us about working with the Portland Sea Dogs this year and gives us some insight on prospects like Dylan Spackey and Brandon Walter. We also hear what it was like to work with Amir Garrett and Joey Votto when she was with the Reds, as well as her big career aspirations for the future. I do want to win four World Series rings. I would love to follow in Kim's footsteps and be a GM someday. I think it'd be like a really cool moment that, you know, the woman who hired me to work at MLB Kim A, I could be, Mm -hmm. you know, like in, in that same line of female GMs. I love the idea of going back to the commissioner's office and being a custodian of the game and shepherding the sport for the next generation. After that, Eric Longenhagen welcomes old friend Kylie McDaniel back to the show. Kylie begins by telling us about his good deeds and pet adoption before the duo catch up on their recent travels and how they manage long road trips. Eric and Kylie talk about what is making SEC baseball so good lately, as well as some of the elite programs you see at the National High School Invitational. The pair also look back at some of the top high school pitchers that were drafted in recent years and see if they can learn anything from categorizing them in hindsight, including a particular eye towards injury risk and upside. I think I wrote an ace rankings at ESPN last year. I had 12 aces in there. I think there were seven TJs on that list. And then I went and looked at the third starters, not in the article, but separately. And it's like 15% of those guys have TJ. I think there's some idea of like, if you are destined to be an ace, a TJ does not slow you down. If you're destined to be a number three starter, it absolutely can slow you down. And so I think when you look at a guy like Hunter Green, it's like, oh, well, if he's all of these things at an elite level, him throwing hard and maybe having a TJ, like that won't affect him at all. And I think that for me, that's like a, an illuminating way of looking at it. But before we get to these great conversations, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is not only the best place for you to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can also pick up an ad-free membership for yourself or for a friend. It is the best way to browse a site and to support the site, helping us to keep doing everything we do. From the articles and leaderboards, to the prospect rankings and roster resource pages, to the podcasts and projections, to everything else, we are able to do it thanks to the support of our members. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest is Katie Kral, formerly a baseball operations analyst for the Cincinnati Reds. And now, as of just a handful of months ago, a development coach in the Boston Red Sox organization. Katie, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks so much, David. I'm really happy to be here. Katie, you graduated from Northwestern University, I believe, four years ago. And since that time, you've not only worked for the Reds, but also in the MLB office, very briefly for Google. And that is quite the resume, especially for somebody who spent a good chunk of today, we're talking on on Monday night, riding a bus. Yes, we had a glamorous nine-hour bus ride to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. (laughs) Yeah, that I think people will pick up very quickly on the fact that you're actually working for a minor league affiliate right now. Yes, I'm with the Portland Sea Dogs this year, and you're spot on, David. Since Northwestern, it definitely has been a hectic few years, but I feel like I've gotten really great exposure to different facets, not only of baseball, but big tech as well. And we are definitely going to talk a little tech on this conversation. 
But first, you are, I think, in a, a hotel room in Harrisburg right now. So I guess one of our goals is to uh, not have hotel Wi-Fi. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's the it's the travels of a, a minor league coach, you know. But uh, I'm excited. I think it's been really cool to be in the trenches in uniform and see what it's like for a minor league player. I think it gives me a greater appreciation for what it means to be a professional baseball player. And you are seeing what a, that life is like as a development coach, you know, for the Sea Dogs. So what exactly does a development coach do? And how does it compare to what you actually did with the Reds? It definitely is a different side of the game in that I would say my focus is primarily on optimizing the resources that we have and implementing them between the lines. Whereas with the Reds, it was very much the stereotypical money ball role of who should we sign, how much should we pay them, and where should they play. Here, it's working with our hitting coach and our pitching coach and our manager and thinking about our advanced scouting and then also integrating information and data into our player plans. So obviously, we want to win as many games as possible in the Red Sox minor league system. But at the end of the day, we also want to help these guys grow as players. And so equipping them with the tools and the processes that we feel like are going to make them most successful. You're actually suggesting, Katie, that the Cincinnati Reds had a money ball approach that they were trying to optimize uh, <laughs> dollars spent. <laughs> I would say that my role specifically kind of touched on the realms of pro scouting, baseball ops and R&D. So I think across those worlds, you know, there definitely are probably, um, you know, different philosophies that you can take and were present in that front office, but I am really appreciative for the opportunity and the, the liberal arts approach to the front office that I felt like the Reds provided me. Yeah. And we should probably make it a point to say that you are not related to Nick Kral, who <laughs> leads the uh, Reds front office for people who no. don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> we used to like send out emails and it used to be a running joke, Katie Kral, comma, no relation to Nick. <laughs> Yeah. Did you ever get uh, any emails or messages that were meant to meant for Nick? <laughs> Occasionally, yes. Sometimes people would call and they would be upset about something that had happened in the game, like maybe a, a reliever had blown the lead or something. So they would call. So I would walk in in the morning after maybe like a bad loss and I would have all these messages of all these people who were upset with me. <laughs> so I had to, um, you know, kind of uh, institute a filter in, in what messages that I looked at in the morning and what got passed back up to Nick. Wow, I wonder if uh, it ever worked in the reverse that Nick got messages for you. Maybe, hopefully they were positive. He did. <laughs> yeah, let's let's jump to uh, to what you're doing now. I am assuming that you are helping to put together player plans in Portland. Yes. So thinking through the top of our organization, where we feel like from like a pitching perspective, if there's like different usage that we want to try with guys on the hitting or run creation side, thinking through different approaches, whether it's take decisions, swing decisions. So yes, like trying to bring that to the player, but also have that continuity across the different levels. So as a player moves up, he understands what his goals are, whether he's in double A AA or triple A. So is a lot of what you were doing there, Katie, like sort of data and technology based? Yes, definitely. But then also having that feel of when to come to a player, when to maybe pivot in a different direction. And I think you get, like I said, a greater appreciation for that when you're riding the buses with the guys every day when you're in those meetings, you know, it's, it's less so like parachuting in and telling someone what they should do and more so working with them on how they want to see their career unfold. Yeah. You are, unless I'm mistaken, pursuing an MBA right now. Yes. I was actually doing some homework on the bus while Blades of Glory was playing. I was trying to 
focus on the case study I had to write up and they had a Will Ferrell blaring in the background. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you are possibly balancing those two, but uh, regard, <laughs> regardless of how you are or maybe who are, are not, to what extent do the players even know that you are pursuing an MBA? And if they do, do you think that impacts how they look at you at all as a baseball development coach? Yes, they definitely, David, are aware of it because on Saturday I had to duck out for a bit to give a presentation. And so Christian Koss was like, Katie, where'd you go? You know, because um, when I'm in the dugout, like I'll help them like break down the opposing pitcher or, you know, like I'll just give them like quick tips on things that we maybe discussed earlier. So <laughs> they were kind of thrown when I wasn't there for a few innings. But in terms of the way that I feel like an MBA kind of differentiates my skill set, I really think it's about understanding people and the University of Chicago is known for its quantitative approach. And I think there's an incredible amount of value in having that data-driven focus to decision-making. But I've also learned so much about culture and how organizations can put people in situations that really empower them and allow them to succeed. So I think from a coaching perspective, I'm leveraging a lot of my business school skills as well. And as you know, I was in Portland for Media Day last week. And I talked to a few of the young pitching prospects in the organization, and both of them talked to me about things that they were, they were working on. And it was pretty clear to me from what they said that data was, was playing a real role. Absolutely. And I think that's a priority of the Red Sox as a whole is to be very innovative in pitch design and thinking through how we can look at similar characteristics or how we can build models and find out whether it's grips or what what types of factors go into ideal or good pitches and then what are the cues or how can we teach that? So I wouldn't say it's anything that's revolutionary per se, but I do think that the advantage really lies in how we're implementing it and the way that we're communicating with players. Yeah. One of the pitchers that I spoke to, and I hope I'm pronouncing his, his last name correctly, is it Dylan Spackey? Yes. Spackey. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. I spoke to Dylan, who I didn't actually know a lot about prior to, you know, to talking to prior to speaking to Spackey. <laughs> I just knew the right, <laughs> you know, the write-ups, you know, that I've seen. Uh, he throws from a low arm angle and has, uh, from what he told me, he's, he's fairly unique. He said he's actually been told in the organization that his pitch profiles are somewhat unique. I don't know how much you can really speak on, uh, speak on Spacky, speaking on, on individual pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think what, what we like about Dylan, I think, is like the way that he uses his pitch mix. So that's awesome to hear that he was vocal and pretty, you know, candid and receptive to the data, because I think that's the biggest hurdle. I think that a lot of teams obviously recognize the power of using numbers, but not everyone can necessarily customize their approach. So for example, like how you might communicate with Dylan might be different from how you communicate with Brandon Walter. And, you know, it takes extra time to have that individualized approach. But I think when you can do it and when you can build that trust and have that level of rapport with players, you know, it's, it's an incredible separator. And what type of tools, Katie, are being used to really help figure out what a pitcher like Dylan Spackey needs to do to optimize his stuff, you know, with his arm angle and the way he's delivering the baseball? Definitely. So like for Spackey, you know, he, as of his most recent appearances, he's got the four pitch mix. And I think for him, it's, you know, looking at the different pitch clusters, thinking about like the separation that he's getting from his sinker and his fastball and change, thinking about like, how can we optimize his slider? 
what about, you know, the run or the motion of his different pitches play really well. I think what I like about Dylan in particular is having, you know, the different planes. So they're coming out of the same release point, but when a hitter is actually like seeing his, his repertoire, it's not necessarily going to be the same type of action. So, you know, we've got internal tools and we have models, but it's also thinking about like how he actually is going to then deploy his mix in the game. So how is he going to, you know, get those outs? Like, I think whether you're thinking about like his ground ball rate or the types of contact that he's eliciting, you know, all of that kind of, again, makes that personalized approach and allows us to really get a sense of who he is as a pitcher and where we feel like he's going to be in the best position to succeed. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little, Katie, on models, the models you have for pitching? Yeah, definitely. From a high level, I would say it's looking at other players who have had success with those types of pitches. So thinking through different characteristics that are ideal, you know, like whether it's breaking down what makes Devin Williams's changeup so extraordinary, you know, if we were to build a changeup from the ground up, like would it look like Williams? Would it look like Louis Castillo? So I think, you know, most teams have similar processes. They might have different ingredients that go into the soup, but at the end of the day, what a model is, is you're just taking data and you're trying to make predictions based on the history that you have and what you feel like needs to be weighted and what categorical variables you think are going to have the most significant influence. Do you use comps a lot, you know, just or use comps when they're working with pitchers? I think comps are used throughout baseball. Like when I was at MLB, comps were a huge part of the salary arbitration process. I think in the draft room with the Reds, comps were used often. I think, again, from business school, like the way that people rely on heuristics and how they process information, like it's far easier for me to say to someone, oh, you know, throw like John Lester than it is to maybe like just spit out a number. So I think whenever you can bring those analogies or where you can you know, make those accessible comparisons, it's super valuable, you know, and again, like with that customized approach, like if I'm working with a player who maybe is from the Dominican, like I might not cite Sandy Koufax, but I might cite Pedro Martinez, right? So it's recognizing like what's going to resonate with the individual that you're speaking to. No, for, for sure. Brandon Walter is one of the more fascinating prospects in the organization. You know, what can you say about why his stuff works? Yeah, definitely. Brandon threw the other day, I think, Obviously, from the left side, it, it's nasty stuff. And we were having a meeting with our catchers and they were saying that, you know, you have to set up a little bit differently to be able to receive it over the plate because it does move. I think for him, you know, he's got the three pitch mix, the sinker slider change. I think he recognizes that he's getting good results now. So it's just really focusing on that location and trying to deploy his pitches in the best possible spots. So he feels like as he ascends up the minor league ladder that he's able to get guys out. And I think that there is you know, like a lot of promising trends that we're seeing from him that we're excited about. No, one reason that I wanted to ask about Brandon Walter is when I spoke to him uh, maybe a month or so ago, you know, for fan graphs, he said that he basically is not looking to, you know, to hit corners, that he is basically, the catcher is set up down the middle because his ball moves so much that mm-hmm. he's really, you know, he's succeeding on movement more than location. Is that yeah, accurate? Definitely. Yeah, I, and again, like, I think that he is a very unique pitcher and especially coming from that side, like he knows who he is. And I think that we're respecting that and we're, you know, trying to give him the tools where he's going to succeed. And, you know, Cole Cottom, Eli Marrero, Rondal, like the, the catchers that we have in Portland, like they have great working relationships with him. And I think they understand his game plan and they're able and willing to help him execute it. And another reason that I brought up Brandon Walter is as a segue into one of the more unique pitchers in Cincinnati, who we actually, who I asked Matt Bowman about, 
on last week's Fangraphs Audio, which is Amir Garrett, because mm-hmm. his slider is very, very unique. Is that something that you had a chance to dig into when you were with the Reds? Yeah, definitely. I would put together these thought experiments when I was with the Reds, like thinking through our 40-man roster and the different components of it. And Amir, obviously, like was one of the main lefties that we had out of the bullpen in 2020 and 2021. I think, you know, the bullpen was an area heading into the 2021 season that there were a lot of different guys that we tried to piece together, whether it was Jeff Hoffman, TJ Antone being in the in the bullpen rather than the rotation. And so, yeah, <laughs> Amir Slider, it's unique again, like that left side. And then, you know, the results that he has with it, they're pretty good, like especially against lefties, obviously, it's nearly impossible for them to touch, but wish him all the best and think that he was a really important contributor to Cincinnati when he was with the team. Yeah. To what extent, Katie, can you compare the pitching programs in the Boston and Cincinnati organizations? Definitely more of an apples to orange comparison. I think when Kyle Bodie was with the Reds, he had his processes and methods in place. And I think with the Red Sox, there definitely like is some influence from driveline, but I wouldn't say it's a direct comparison. You know, I have a great deal of respect for Kyle and for Dan O'Coin, like two phenomenal people who were in Cincinnati when I was there too. I think, you know, with the Red Sox, it's really about being progressive, but still also having a respect for that traditional style of baseball. And so kind of like gradually easing into how do we develop pitchers while also maintaining the foundation that's been built for the past few years for the guys who signed, you know, 2016, 2017. So you were with the Reds in 2020 and 2021. How much credit can we give you for Joey Votto making adjustments that had him hitting, uh, <laughs> was it 36 home runs? And I believe that his best uh, WRC plus in, in quite a while. That was all Joey and uh, the Reds hitting coach, Alan Zinter. I, I will give total credit to Z for that, um, who is an awesome human being like that, that coaching staff, you know, David, Derek Johnson, DJ, Z, just really amazing human beings, Joe Mather, people who treated me so well. And I felt like I learned a great deal from when I was there. Yeah. How, how aware of the actual changes that Votto was making were you? I was pretty involved with the major league team. So it wouldn't necessarily be like sent in an email, like Joey is working on this, but I think there was a great dynamic where there wasn't necessarily like an upstairs downstairs divide between the front office and the field in Cincinnati. I think that's something that David Bell and his father, Buddy, we're huge proponents of, you know, how can we get the coaching staff in on acquisition meetings? How can we make different members of the front office travel so that they see what it's like to be on the road with the team? And I think when you're able to intentionally blur those lines, then when things happen with Joey, everyone I think is a little bit more invested because they were along for the ride. Yeah. Katie, can you, can you, without giving away any, any secrets, talk a little about what acquisition meetings are really like in the major leagues in a front office? Yeah, definitely. I think each team's going to be different, both in terms of scope and the types of people who are in there. I think there's great benefit to having a diversity of opinions. I think when you have consensus and people who are on the same page, you know, you don't have to substantiate your position. Like David, if you and I were in a room and we wanted the trade for let's let's use like the Nick Castellanos, Marcelo Zuna example, um, like heading into the 2020 season. Like if you and I always view players the same way, if we use the same inputs and tools when we're making our assessment, like we're never going to have to challenge each other because we're looking at the same inputs. But I think when you get different people and something the Reds did, I know other organizations do, like whether it's people from international scouting, 
personnel and player development, when you have those different lenses, I think you're going to make more informed decisions because you're considering, you know, the holistic addition of the person, not necessarily to fill one void or check off one box. You're more so thinking about, okay, how does this move the organization in the preferred direction? Yeah. Did you see a lot of uh, agreement or discord in terms of analytic information and more straightforward, you know, information on, on player value, you know, just more old school views? I definitely would think for most front offices, I, I can't even really name like one or two exceptions. Like most people pretty much are on the same page when it comes to what stats matter. Like, I don't think that there's any front office in baseball right now who's citing a pitcher's win-loss record as a reason to sign or not sign someone. I think in coaching, it probably is a little bit more traditional still, but like, I think anybody listening to this podcast, you know, like would probably be comfortable and familiar with like the terminology or the information that would be cited in those acquisition meetings today. I believe the manager for the Sea Dogs right now is Chad Epperson. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I think Chad is new to the position. He has a background, I believe, as a catching coordinator. What is your are your conversations like with him when you're talking pitching and pitching plans? Yeah, Chad has been with the organization for almost two decades, I believe. I think he's got four World Series rings, one of the benefits of being part of the Red Sox in the 21st century. And Epi's great. I think for him, you know, he definitely recognizes what I bring to the table, but I think he, he views me as a, a coach and not just as a quant, which I really respect. So if I'm, you know, recommending to him, hey, I think like in this particular situation, X reliever would be a good person to bring in. You know, he's happy to have that dialogue and kind of rely on me, iterate with me in those types of decisions. But he definitely has this this great camaraderie that he he's developing, not only among the coaching staff, but I think in the clubhouse as well. People really love to play for him. Yeah, I think what baseball needs is uh, to come up with a new new word that combines coach and quant. And, <laughs> I like it. Uh, I'm not quite clever enough to come up with any good uh, suggestions off the top of my head. <laughs> okay, I'll workshop it too. That can be my homework assignment for the week. <laughs> yeah, no, you definitely should, Katie. I don't want to go much longer, but one thing that I definitely want to ask you about is uh, part of your background getting into baseball. I believe it's your godfather who caught Nolan Ryan back in the day? Yes. Rick Stelmazic was the bullpen coach of the Twins for 32 years. And yeah, he did have a playing career as well. And so the number that I wear, number 43, that's an honor of him. So it's been really cool. Uh, when we were in Fort Myers for spring training, one of the fields is named after him, Steli Field for the Twins Complex. So it was, it was pretty moving to be there for my first season for it to be in Fort Myers. So super grateful for him, uh, even though he always said to me that the damn spreadsheets are ruining baseball. And now I'm a producer of those damn spreadsheets. <laughs> oh, man, I don't know if I want to laugh or cry when I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was a great man. No, and he did, you know, catch Nolan Ryan with the Angels. He hit one major league home run. I looked up and I'm going to quiz you on that. Who did Rick Stalmazek homer off of? I'm pretty sure it was at Wrigley, if I'm remembering correctly. Was it? It was indeed at Wrigley Field and it was off a of Hall of Famer. Hmm. Okay. So it was at Wrigley. It was probably a National League team. Oh no, I'm, I'm getting down on the Jeopardy clock. Oh man. <laughs> Do I hey, get half credit for Wrigley? <laughs> yes, you do. No, you've aced the entire you know podcast interview, but you have flunked the Rick Stelmasic question. He homered off of Don Sutton. Oh, I should have known that. 
you should know that. And yeah, let's stick uh, with him for, for just a short bit. He also caught, you know, for the Cubs, of course, he caught Steve Stone, who is, of course, one mm-hmm. of the great, great analysts. Did you grow up rooting for the White Sox or the Cubs? little bit of both. I fondly remember listening to Steve Stone and Hawk Harrelson on White Sox broadcast. My mom was on the board of the White Sox. So that 2005 team, like Ozzy Guillen, Scotty Pesednik, AJ Frasinski, I was actually out with friends during spring training. And one of my coworkers was like, can you name like that entire 2005 team? And I like rattled off everybody from like Mark Burley to Joe Creedy. And they were like blown away, but also worked for the Cubs in 2016 planning the World Series trophy tour. So definitely love a lot of people on the North side. So if if it's permissible, I support both. <laughs> no, I think that's fair. Much as I think it's probably feasible to root. No, you can't root for the Yankees and Mets both. That, that would be too much. <laughs> that's the line. No, I think that is definitely a line. I should ask you one last question, Katie. You have done so, so much at a young age. What is in the future? I know that if you ask a player what happens when he's done playing, he's usually going to say, I'm just focusing on the here and now, but I'll ask you and see if I can get you beyond uh, that question. Definitely. I had never considered being in uniform and as a coach. So I definitely agree with that player mentality of trying to be happy where your feet are. You know, with that being said, I do want to win four world series rings. I would love to follow in Kim's footsteps and be a GM someday. I think it'd be like a really cool moment that you know, the woman who hired me to work at MLB Kim A, I could be, mm-hmm. you know, like in, in that same line of female GMs. I love the idea of going back to the commissioner's office and being a custodian of the game and shepherding the sport for the next generation. So wouldn't necessarily say other than the rings and the, the GM or the uh, commissioner's office position that I have a, a timeline or a, a cadence of how that would unfold. But those are definitely some benchmarks that I'm working towards and would love to experience if possible. So it sounds like maybe the coach thing will only go so far and you will eventually become a quant again. (laughs) (laughs) I'll pivot back. Yeah, who knows? I mean, I love being in the dugout. I think you you really can't get any closer to the field unless the Cubs are going to draft me at some point. So (laughs) it's, it's been phenomenal. And I think it just gives me a greater appreciation and understanding of this side of the game. Great. If the Cubs do draft you, what position will you play? Oh, definitely second base. We had a, an MLB softball team when I was in New York and we played games in Central Park. And I, I would say I was probably more um, glove first, but I could like uh, I could knock out some infield singles every now and then. So <laughs> if I'm if I'm making it to the show, it's definitely on the on the right side of the infield. No, you need at least a gap to gap power to play in the big leagues. So. <laughs> You're not wrong. No. Hey, Katie, it was great to have you on. I think we've rambled on or I have rambled on quite enough. So I guess I will thank you once again for being a guest on Fangraphs Audio. Oh my gosh, definitely. This was a blast. Thanks, David. (laughs) No, thanks, Katie. And thanks everybody for listening. Hello, Fangraphs Audio listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you live from the Kitchen Island and the Fangraphs Southwest Desert Compound. I'm joined today by arbitration expert and ESPN <laughs> baseball insider. It's Kylie McDaniel. Kylie, how's it going, buddy? Pretty good. Oh, oh, I heard that. Oh, that was very nice. It's good, it's good to be back. Uh, yeah, if you've been following me on Twitter, you know that I've been doing a lot of puppy maintenance and traveling of late. So that's pretty much all I've been doing for the last week or two. 
Yeah, tell everyone what's going on with your with your dog situation. You're doing a good thing for once in your life. <laughs> Thank you. I actually, uh, a uh, scouting director asked, asked me about it at a game this week. And he's like, so what's the deal? And I explained it to him in like 10 seconds. He's like, wait, so you guys are like good people? And he was like confused by it. <laughs> and I was like, thanks? Like, can't tell if you're being earnest either. So we were thinking about getting another dog to go with, uh, with Scout. And we were going to do it after the baseball season when I'm not traveling as much. And then there's a rescue group called Bosley's Place here in Atlanta that we were like, oh, we'd probably get one from there. And then they posted something saying that they were in desperate need of foster families to sort of widen their bandwidth of dogs that they could sort of take in at any given time. Uh, And we're like, oh, well, this will be good for us to sort of get used to them as a group and then get Scout used to having other dogs around and then also, you know, doing the good thing. And also like having puppies around. And since we don't have kids, you know, we have have a little extra bandwidth, whereas I feel like most most people I know with kids are like, we are not looking for something else to do. Bosley's, they do hair restoration too, don't they? It's it's, it's a dual business. I think the hair pays for the dogs uh, from how I understand it. Yeah. Uh, So and then the travel that you had was to go to NHSI. You've done some other draft drives but most recently it was nhsi right yeah i I went up there and it it usually works out that there there's so many colleges around there i mean you've got unc nc state wake duke campbell east carolina and between like all of those you're like oh well there's gonna be three or four i want to go to and this year there really wasn't it was just basically just campbell uh there were a couple decent high school players around that weren't in nhsi but nhsi was so uh stacked this year there were I don't know, probably like four, like, you know, uh, high school guys that were going to go in like the top 50 picks, basically. And two of them, uh, Turley and Romero from out west. So like, you know, potentially save me a flight out west. So that was, you know, more more than enough and then hit a, hit a pro game on my way home. What is your pre-drive, especially when it's like one of those longer day trips? Like, do you have anything ritualistic? What is it that you're packing and what is your travel like? When you said packing, being in Georgia, I was just like, you're talking about guns, aren't you? I knew it. You know I stay strapped. Well, I'm in Arizona, so yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. No, I'm I'm big on – so I am not bothered by long drives as much as I think most people are. Like I think anything up to like four hours, I'm like, oh, well, I'll just like make a couple phone calls and listen to a bunch of podcasts and be able to sort of space out and not be like attacked by screens at all times. And like I, it's sort of soothing at some level as long as it's, there's not a ton of traffic, which obviously in Atlanta happens plenty uh, in the games around here. So yeah, that's usually what I do. And and I am like, like don't hesitate at all. Like uh, Columbia, South Carolina, I went to a couple weeks ago for a Vandy series. It's like three hours. And like, I, I'm just like, oh, great. I got to drive to Columbia. And my wife's like, great. I was like, well, yeah, not that I'm getting away from you, but like, I, you know, it's nice to like mix things up a bit. I have a love-hate relationship with it because I do like the... I don't know, it is like semi-meditative, I suppose, to have on, you know, music or whatever and just sort of be driving through the desert to San Diego or to Vegas or whatever. Like that is the equivalent of my, that's my five to six hour drive is from here to San Diego or LA or Vegas. And yeah, it, it is nice, but there are times when I'll, I'll, I'm not excited to do whatever because I know how my back is going to feel at the end, but. Well, and I just did it for, it was like five and a half hours up to North Carolina and then five and a half back. Uh, and then there was a game today in Knoxville I was thinking about going to for Tennessee, Tennessee Tech, and Blade Tidwell is starting. And it's almost four up there. And I was just like, I just turned in the rental car yesterday, and I'm driving to Columbia, South Carolina tomorrow to see Tucker Tillman uh, match up with Sal Stewart. And I'm just like, yeah, luckily I'm at a point now where I'm not still in the I need to go to four games a day. Like, I'm still learning. I need to, like, sort of prove myself. I'm like, you know, I think one step beyond that. So there's, like, not qu- – and also, like, the game's on ESPN+. Plus. It's not like I'm going to totally miss it. Right. And I'll get Tennessee later too. So there's, you know, there's still a lot of options that I think help me. Whereas if I was, like, living in Wisconsin and had a chance to go see Tennessee, it's like, well, I have to go. And now all these games around me, you can sort of pick your spots. Let's talk about Tennessee. They're in the middle of a 23-game 
winning streak that has encompassed like about a month of SEC play now. They've done so without the guy who entered the season as their best draft prospect. Basically, you mentioned it's it's Blade Tidwell, who has essentially been bumped from the weekend rotation coming off of a shoulder injury to work in the middle of the week because they've got, you know, <laughs> a couple underclassmen throwing like sitting 94 to 97 all weekend, basically. Uh, have you seen them yet? No, they're probably like my biggest sort of target that's like basically choosing when I want to make the, the three, three and a half hour drive. Uh, and I think pretty much everybody else of note I've run into at some point. So yeah, they're the one. And I was waiting for Tidwell to come back because I didn't want to go do like a whole weekend or back-to-back games and then miss him. So yeah, I would imagine next couple of weeks I'll track them down. I think that like, I don't know what's what they're putting in the water there, but between, you know, Ben Joyce sitting like 99 to 102 and Chase DeLander transferring from Georgia Southern and now sitting in the mid-90s with a prototypical pitcher's frame and Maddox Bruns freshman who didn't sign last year and is like looks incredible basically had to step in for Tidwell at the very beginning of the year like they're pretty loaded with like different like I told my grandfather on the phone yesterday that like there's a college rotation that has guys who all sit in the mid-90s or better and like it blew his mind and so Tennessee specifically has had a bunch of guys who are like sitting in the mid-90s and above, you're around the SEC schools much more frequently than I am. What's going on down there? I mean, obviously, they're very well-funded athletic programs, but is there something that the SEC is doing specifically uh, that's enabling them to develop pitchers at a rate that is like, you know, blow? I see mostly Pac-12, and it's like blowing these programs away. Yeah, I, I started noticing it like five, six years ago when uh, you'd see the, um, I guess the first list would be like perfect game or be like the best incoming freshman in the country. And I just run down just the names and you'd be like, oh yeah, a lot of these guys are in the Southeast, but there's plenty of them out West as well. And like of the ones out West, half of them are going to SEC schools, like kids from Southern California going to Arkansas and Mississippi State. And you're like, I've been to these places and I've been to Southern California. There doesn't seem to be like anything in common with these two places other than they both really care about baseball. So I think that just sort of speaks to like, and I can understand somebody from Southern California that like, you know, is used to having like very important games at, you know, J. Sarah or Harvard Westlake or whatever. And then you go to Arkansas and it's like a Tuesday against Arkansas State and there's 9,000 people there with like a AAA level stadium. Like I understand that like that sort of shines through. And so I think that in combination with, you know, the TV deal, how much the coaches get paid, how Arkansas and Vanderbilt were sort of the first teams in the SEC to really embrace some of these, you know, sort of driveline Cleveland Guardians, like those those sort of tenets and have to great success and so now i think a lot of teams if they don't have a huge inherent recruiting advantage like how florida can get any kid in state and not spend any scholarship money on them if they have decent grades just because of like the scholarship situation and like vanderbilt having like a lot of advantages being able to get like merit-based aid and things like that if you don't have that then you want to spend money on facilities spend money on a coach bring in the best assistant coaches, lean into some of these development advantages. And the incentives are very clear. Whereas I think we've seen a lot of like mid-major schools are like 15 years behind when it comes to developing players and understanding what data does, no matter how much they use it, just like understanding what it means. And I think you're seeing that sort of engine get roaring to where, you know, it's not quite to the level of SEC football, but I think essentially the money and the incentives and the competition and all of that is sort of pushing all of this forward. And I think Tennessee is a good example where like they don't really have a lot of built in advantages in terms of they should be, you know, beating Georgia to players in Atlanta or, you know, players from Florida. Florida should be getting pretty much all of them that they want, given like the history and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, Tony Vadiello coming from Arkansas, again, one of those places that really understood how to do pitching development. I think you're just seeing all of that come together. And I know every time, 
I think, and I think you've experienced this too, every time you think there's some sort of silver bullet, like what is this big league org or this college doing that doesn't make any sense? Like they'll have a down cycle soon. And the answer is usually like, oh, we're just like all pulling in the same direction and doing a good job and have been a little bit lucky on top of that. And I think that that's probably what it is. It is frustrating to sit where I am and have like the weird amalgam of college programs within, you know, casual driving distance of my front door having you know sort of floundering you know, with Arizona as good as it has been for the last handful of years including you know college world series trip for their head coach to leave for LSU and a bunch of the recruits to to bail and pitching coach to leave for A&M like that was frustrating uh, there's still talent down there but it is obviously like it's not a great sign when you have a a huge program and are having success and yet people decide to leave for what they see as greener pastures in the SEC. And this is like happening in other sports too, like it's happening in basketball. I think the SEC is like seeming to make make it a point to try to develop their, their basketball programs relative to the, the rest of the country too. And then like at ASU, I guess we will see how Willie Bloomquist does, but they are taking it ASU the same approach that ASU's football team did where they bring in Herm Edwards. I like Herm. He has a certain charisma that is like great in the kids' living room. And then they have a bunch of like ex-NFL athletes like, you know, Kevin Mawai came through and Antonio Pierce like doing coordinator and uh, like recruiting stuff that worked okay. But like when push comes to shove, they're not doing the X's and O's and like you know, physical development stuff at the level that some of these like, you know, hybrid jock nerds can do. And so like, it hasn't really worked in terms of the ASU football program. And now I guess we'll see if like a similar tact in baseball can possibly work. But Central Arizona, which for a junior college is is extremely progressive and aggressive at like targeting kickback division one guys who didn't get like playing time as freshmen or whatever. Like they housed ASU in the fall when they played one another. Grand Canyon has its best recruit since I've lived here in, in sophomore Jacob Wilson, who's a guy who like, if I think if, if he rakes on the Cape, like is a first rounder, like he's probably the best prospect here in Phoenix overall, like regardless of, of draft here. He, and he's not at ASU. He's a, he's a, he's a SoCal kid. And so like, yeah, what's what's happening here with the two big Pac-12 programs is kind of concerning. Uh, well, and I think just from just from doing like my, uh, you know, sort of yearly trips to Southern California, I usually end up at UCLA. And I think if you look at th- their program, it's like, all right, they're paying John Savage at like an SEC level. And like their incoming freshman class was the best in the country. And they frequently have first round picks. And so you've got the talent, you've got the coaching and you've got sort of the tradition, you're in one of the bigger conferences, but then you just look at the stadium and the attendance, and then what I would assume is the income that comes with that based on the TV deal and how many people are at the game, and it's like nowhere close to maybe any of the SEC schools. Like, I think there's, they would probably outpace a couple of the SEC schools, but it's like Kentucky's a second-tier SEC school and has a brand new, like, great stadium that would probably be the best in the Pac-12. And so you look at, you know, schools out west like the Arizona schools, UCLA, Oregon State, that have had a lot of success, a lot of big leaguers, a lot of recruiting classes, good coaches, like, they pay pretty well on the coaching side. But, like, nobody has that, like, complete package because of, like I said, like, the attendance level, the stadium, the facilities, the TV deal. Like, they can't quite break through. But any given year, any given series, they can certainly win. Any year, they might have four first-round picks. Like, in UCLA, in two years, we'll probably have a really good draft class. So it's something they can't do anything. It's just year in, year out, the same way that, like, Oregon and football doesn't seem to be able to break through at the same way uh, that, like, the SEC football schools do. It's just, like, you can't do it every year, but you can certainly pick your spots. So let's get back to NHSI. So for folks who don't know, that stands for National 
high school invitational. It's put on at the Team USA baseball complex in Cary, North Carolina. And there are like how many teams are like 12 to 16 teams invited to play. And they typically are loaded with Division One commits and MLB draft prospects that are important to see. How many fields are going at any given time at NHSI? Like, what is it like when you're at the event and you're moving around to try to see as many guys as you can? Yeah, they tend to do a pretty good job. That it'll usually go like Wednesday through Saturday. Tuesday will be like a workout day, which mostly rained out this year, where you get sort of infield and BP. And then before each game, there'll be like one one of the four fields. So it's like a stadium field and then three behind it. And usually one of those fields is earmarked for BP. And then as the game starts, both teams will take infield before the game. And so you get to see four games per team. And I don't remember if it's 12 or 16 or 10 or whatever, but it's like a good number of teams. And it's a lot of like sort of blue blood high school programs, like the ones that always have three or four D1 commits that tend to be like sort of recruiting the best guys in their area. And then every now and then you have schools like Hanover and Virginia, which I've heard of, but like they're not like a big power and they have like two big draft guys this year, big and like could get drafted and sign and go pro, which is like pretty unusual for any given high school program around the country. And so you'll see a lot of the same schools there over and over, like Orange Lutheran is like where Garrett Cole went. And I would say between them, Jay Sarah and like modern day, they have like half of the good high school players in Southern California at any given time. Yeah. Uh, or like East Lake and San Diego. There's just like a handful of schools. And especially in like the Northeast and Southern California, it tends to be like the big Catholic schools and they tend to recruit a bit. And so those are a lot of the schools like Don Bosco was a private school in New Jersey that was there this year and had a pitcher named Caden Dana and then Buford, which said Joey Bart, Brandon Marsh. Like they've had all kinds of guys come through as a, one of the big public schools in Atlanta and they were there. And so it's a lot of schools like that. Uh, Stoneman Douglas, uh, Jesus Lazardo went there, South Florida. They had a couple draft guys this year, including Roman Anthony. So it's a lot of those sorts of teams. And yeah, you, like the, I guess the sales pitch is like first day, all the best pitchers for all the teams go. And so that's the day that all the scouting directors are in. And then usually scouts sort of filter out over the next four days, depending on how many good hitters there are and how badly they want to see them. And this year it was uh, Roman Anthony, I think is probably like the comp round right now out of Stoneman Douglas in South Florida, Mikey Romero out of Orange Lutheran, who's probably also around the comp round. And then Gavin Turley, uh, an outfielder at Hamilton in Arizona, who I'm sure you've seen a couple times, who is probably also around the comp round. I realized I was going through my rankings and I have them all in the same area. So all of those guys, in addition to Dylan Lesko and Caden Dane on the mound, those are like the five main guys. There were some second tier guys that are like, you know, third, fourth round talents. Maybe they get a million and a half and sign. Maybe they turn down 750K and go to school. Handful of guys in that tier. But that's kind of what the event is every year. It's interesting, like Gavin Turley specifically, and that Hamilton team is absolutely loaded. Like they have guys for next year. Rock Kalowski, whose dad is the the Reds Four Corners area scout. Their shortstop is a UCLA commit. He's an underclassman. Like the team was loaded last year and is back and probably better this season, but uh, that's besides the point. I think the thing that I did want to touch on with you today is like, what was the, like, what was the typical picture of interest like at that event? The first two days, I would say like over half the teams had some guys sitting at 90, including guys I had like never heard of. Like I think Huntington Beach had a guy who I was told like, oh, they have a pretty good pitcher. It was like a lefty sitting 89-91 with a decent breaking ball, decent command. And I'm like, all right, that guy's probably like a really good college pitcher that might turn into like a real draft prospect. And I'm forgetting his name. I didn't write it down. But I just sat and watched him for like an inning or two because I I think they were facing Hamilton that game where there was like a hitter I was watching. And I was like, this is a good pitcher. Like, like again, it's not like a huge draft prospect. And this is like the, you know, sixth most talented team from a draft perspective here. 
And uh, Stoneman Douglas has a kid, Jake Clemente, that was sitting 92 to 96, and he was their third pitcher in the event, and arguably their third best, like, current arm. So, yeah, that's, like, the kind of stuff that happens. And, like, I think Orange Lutheran had, like, three guys that are committed to, like, Power 5 Conference were, like, their three pitchers that weekend. Like, that's what I mean when I say it's, like, the Blue Blood schools. It's, like, I remember when I was in high school in Florida where we, like, we played, like, Andrew McCutcheon and Elijah Dukes and some of these guys when I was in high school. And, like, one time we saw a guy throw a 90 and we were, like, holy cow, like, we had no chance. I couldn't even see it. And, like, some of these high schools will have, like, three guys sitting at 90 and not all of them are seniors. And so you'll see a lot of that. And some of them are better than you think. And But, yeah, generally, it's, like, the guys are told are prospects. There's usually one or two guys you weren't expecting to be a draft prospect that sort of prove themselves and for me that was Seth Keller this year who luckily I kind of knew the name before I came so I knew to go pay attention but he was the guy that I didn't think would be like you know a threat to be you know be on a top 100 list and now I'm like all right he's on the fringes of it if he's not on there and otherwise everybody you know kind of played like I wouldn't say it was like a letdown but like a lot of the guys played about what I thought they would play at I had seen all of them before and so I didn't necessarily change my valuation on any of them but it's also like there's 20 scouting directors and 150 scouts and it's you know good to know that what you thought is still correct and you know all that kind of there's like a lot of sort of fringe benefits to going to like this. So the reason I bring this up is because I want to go back through the last half decade or so of the very famous high school pitchers. And this isn't a perfect way of doing it, but I'm just going to pull up the perfect game, all American classic rosters from the last like couple years. I'm just going to throw some of the names out and let's try to bucket what these guys looked like at the time and then where they're at now as a way of like considering this demographic of prospect, basically, which I, I still think like we're in an area of shift here. I think some of the player dev methodology that began with, you know, driveline and, and major league player dev groups that have worked their way into some of the college programs that we just talked about, like it is now trickling down to like high school programs, especially the the ones in extremely wealthy areas like the ones you've spoken about orange lutheran jay sarah like i could not believe the spread that they had for like scouts and media food wise at some of the jay sarah stuff that i've i've been to is I mean, like as far as i know for a while they were the only <laughs> high school uh, facility that had a trackman unit yeah like i was blown away when i went there for i think it was a boris classic a couple years ago to see royce lewis and stuff and like the food that they had there maybe it was the boris corp who who put out the spread but i'm, I'm just pretty sure it was moms at jay sarah who put it out and like you're lucky if you get a slice of papa john's at asu there's definitely a trend of going to one of the really good schools and looking around and looking at one of the scouts that, you know, does the area being like, how much does it cost to go here? Like, like Drew Jones school is one of those uh, where Jemai Jones also went Wesleyan, which like looks like a liberal arts college in the Northeast. And then, like I said, a lot of those Southern California private schools, you're like, holy cow. Like, <laughs> like I went to a private school for high school and these places like put it to shame. I'm going to rapid fire some some names and let's give a sentence or two on what they were like in high school and the position that they're in now. All right, this is 2015 Perfect Game All-America. Ian Anderson. It was power, fastball, breaking ball, mid-90s. A lot of people had plus grades on both. And then plenty of feel, makings of changeup, definite starter. And then obviously it shifted in pro ball to where the breaking ball backed up to be about average. Changeup came to the forefront. Command eventually came. But otherwise, it's like sort of held serve. I think we see that a lot with guys like, you know, Verlander and Linscombe where they don't have to change up and then it becomes like their best secondary pitch. I think he's sort of gone that path. And there were roundup traits here because it was cold weather, upstate New York, projectable 6'3", 170. And I was with the Braves that year. I can say like we were like talking about the makeup as like, oh, it's like best we've seen. Like the thing you can't find on the free agent market is a frontline guy. Who's the who's the only frontline guy in this draft? It's that guy. Like it was it was was that kind of talk from, you know, people I really trust. 
Yeah, and that 2016 draft class, it's tough, like, to look back. It's This is the year Mickey Moniak went one, and, like, Puck and Senzel were up there, too. Like, there's not really a guy who you'd be happy in retrospect to have taken with the first pick in the draft other than maybe Anderson and Will Smith, and Will Smith went, like, in the comp round. Tyler Baum. Oh, yeah. Uh, he... <laughs> There's going to be a bunch of those. I figured you were going to do it by the draft, like who got the next highest bonus. I was like, oh, I wasn't oh, expecting no. to hear his name. Oh, it's alphabetical, baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, like uh, on the right, because I was in Florida at this point, so I saw him a lot. Uh, on the right day, he'd sit two to five and show you a six or seven, 55 to 60 breaking ball. And then other times he'd show you 90, 93 and sort of average-ish stuff. And he was like a little uh, slim framed enough that I think people push him to school. I'm not sure how the how the body would hold up and how how firm the stuff would be, which is basically how it went in college. Then the arm speed really came late in like the ACC tournament. I think he went second round, and then it's been pretty rough in pro ball so far. Yeah, basically sitting 90-92, the relief risk part of this was real. And like, yeah, he's, he's in an NP area. Speaking of injuries, Jeff Belge. Oh, yeah. Huge lefty. When you, again, when you saw him best, it was mid-90s, pretty decent command, pretty decent athlete, above breaking ball. But sometimes it would be high 80s, sometimes it would be mid 90s. It was, I think people saw him and thought, like, oh, there's just like some Sean Newcomb in here, but he never yeah. quite put it together consistently enough. 6'4, 235 at the time. He's in the upper levels of the Dodgers system now. I saw him. He was in the Fall League. I'm trying to find it in my notes right now, but they're not organized well enough to do that. Here we are. Here he is. 9091 last fall with a cutter 89. I put a 45 on it. Curveball upper 70s also threw a 45, flash 50 on that. Austin Bergner. Yeah, he's a, he's a, <laughs> This was like the longest ones. I'm trying to condense it in my head. So it was like a sophomore in high school. I think he was sitting in the mid nineties and looked like he was going to be like the, the guy, like going the top five picks and do the whole thing. Cause like you'd see him with like a uh, interesting sort of arm action deliveries, a little bit funky, but it, it would be like very too, funky, but it was like too, well, and he also changed it over time. It got a little funkier as he went on, but like there were times where he'd be like 16 years old, two plus pitches in command. And you're like, Holy cow. And then over time, I think the arm action got shorter. The velocity would sometimes be low 90s. He also, like Baum, went to North Carolina. The stuff was up and down. There were times that it looked like he'd go in the you know top two, three rounds. And I don't even remember where he ended up going. But I, he just sort of, like Baum, regressed back to that sort of low 90s average stuff, pitchability type guy. And the power stuff just sort of dried up after he turned like 17. He went uh, ninth round to Detroit in 2019. He started this season at Erie. Uh, he's still starting. I for sure have notes on how it was last year. This is, I think, the category of guy who I want to stay sensitive to as we go through just because this is the violent, scary delivery bucket. He's still sitting about 93. So I guess he's sort of in the, this guy has a chance area, but it's definitely not peak. But also, like, the expectations at one point is he would be top half of the first round. And, like, I, right. he's not he's not delivering on that. But could he be a big leader? Sure. Other end of the spectrum here, Braxton Garrett from Alabama, Marlin System. This was cleaner, 93, 95 at peak in high school. You saw the breaking ball. You could see the change up. This was the advanced lefty who you'd think would like move through the minors extremely quickly. The velocity has kind of backed off. He had some injury stuff. Again, like pretty random who ends up having the injury stuff, whether it's the super violent delivery guy or the, the clean look, but Brax is sort of in that fringe utility arm area, like bottom of a staff. And to be clear, all of these guys are like guys that popped as like sophomores in high school. And that's kind of why they're on this list. Cause these are the guys that like didn't even pop in the spring. Cause this is before right. the spring of their high school senior year. Jason groom. Yeah. Another, another tricky one. He was, you know, as a freshman sophomore in high school, I think I saw him at Jupiter 
and it was like silky smooth one to five plus breaking ball good delivery through strikes feel for a change up similar to Bergner like just so early you're like well how could this go wrong and then he you know I think probably held serve through the spring but then it was like well he's getting a little bigger and you know is the command gonna hold up and is he really progressing or did he sort of peak early had TJ and pro ball still like you know has a chance to have a solid average fastball plus curveball maybe start maybe not like he's, you know still could be a guy but he also i think similar to Bergner to these other guys was like seen as like oh this could be the guy guy and it just hasn't quite sustained right. that level right yeah the the curveball shape here relative to the fastball angle is not great it is just so easy to identify that big huge curveball out of his hand and it looked very pretty in high school but it's a little less effective against hitters who like can see it tony losi 63225 this guy was in the nolan arenado deal went to georgia it was like sort of velo only fringe you know middle relief look even though he was holding velo deep into games closer to draft time now he's in colorado sort of where pitching prospects go to die a little bit so you know again like someone whose peak is like a 40 fv guy cole raggins reagans raggins we've heard it enough now i don't know why i, I always said reagans i don't know what the answer was yeah he was another guy that he was on those north florida christian teams where it was him and i mean i forget his name but there there was a center fielder that went high there were two other uh cole sands and carson sands and matt i'm forgetting his last name but there were like four draft prospects on the same high school team in tallahassee i was like they might have more talent than Florida State did that year. Yeah, he was a sort of plus command, plus changeup, good feel, had all the all the makings. And then I think he said, what is it, two TJs? Yeah, he, I think he missed three consecutive seasons with multiple TJs and is still like in that 88 to 91 area with fringe breaking ball and, and good changeup. And he's in that like depth starter area now. Drake Fellows. Uh, not related to Brian Fellows. I don't remember how he looked in high school, but... It was the same kind of guy. It, it was a bigger guy, a little bit of a relief look, really good breaking ball, threw pretty hard. If you saw him throwing hard, you liked it. But I think everybody was like, this is probably not a 180-inning starter. And then he kind of held serve through Vanderbilt as a, a guy that started in college but kind of had like more of a 1-2 to two inning relief look, good slider, a little bit of effort. And I think he's pretty much been that guy in pro ball. Kevin Gowdy, uh, Santa Barbara high schooler, 6'4", 170, was 90-94 with a good slider in high school, was like in the back of that tier two high school pitcher in this draft class and ended up going to the Phillies with their first pick in the second round. Didn't do so well there. He's another guy who got hurt. And his profile in high school was like, everything's solid average, but he's projectable athletic. Right. Like we could see this exploding and it just didn't quite explode. Yeah. Was in like, Forrest Whitley would have probably been in this draft class too then, right? Wasn't this like the Muller, Wentz? No, I'm forgetting now. I think yeah, Wentz. Manning. Yeah, all those guys. But yeah, like I've, you know, Kevin Gowdy bumped to 96 for me this spring. He's now with Texas. He was part of that like Kyle Gibson, Ian Kennedy, Spencer Howard swap last summer. There's Velo. The slider has kind of backed up and there aren't really strikes. He's in like a fringe relief prospect area. Carl Kaufman from Brother Rice High School. It's another one of these like power consistently pumping out guys high schools this is in michigan went to michigan was part of their college world series team sinker oriented pretty average secondary stuff he's in the rocky system now with you know all their other sinker ball type guys he's like maybe a fifth starter prospect charles king from Coppell high school in texas went to tcu and i think he i think he was there for like five years yeah he did seem to be there a long time Swingman in college at TCU is not really a pro prospect reggie lawson this is another one where there was huge projection Great curveball. The curveball had no 
power. It was like 69 to 72 miles an hour at the time. But you were hoping that as he filled out that he would really add like power to that breaking ball. Instead, he ended up with like an okay slider. He was hurt a bunch. I think this was part of like San Diego had wanted to draft Groom and I think it had promised him a bunch of money and then the Red Sox took him without making a call and, you know, got a deal done. And then San Diego pivoted to drafting Lawson, signing him over slot, even though he was kind of dinged his senior year. And then Mason Thompson, who was also on this PG All-America West roster, they ended up doing both those guys Mason Thompson listed at 6'7", 186 on this roster. He's been tantalizing at times, but never really performed. Like, his performance on paper is shockingly bad throughout his entire minor league career. He's in the big leagues somehow right now with Washington. Um, You know, it's mid to upper 90s with sink and no feel and an occasionally good slider when he locates it, but he's in that, like, fringe relief area right now. It's kind of scary. If I'm not mistaken, I think he had TJ as a junior and wasn't healthy enough to pitch in this game, but they put him on the team because they knew he'd be a guy in the spring. Gotcha. I don't remember him. Do I remember him pitching in this game? I feel like I kind of remember it, but that might be wrong. I know that he kind of came out of nowhere and was selected, you know. This was one of those where, like, it kind of was surprising. Well, and the Padres have done that with, like, Cal Quantrill. It was, like, based off of seeing him as, like, a freshman, and then he was, like, throwing post-TJ bullpens at Stanford, and they drafted him, like, off of that the same year. So, yeah, I I don't think they're bashful about taking guys when you're not sure exactly what it's going to be, but you've scouted him a lot. Ryan Berger, you know. West Virginia off of a TJ. Like, they've been pretty aggressive in that area. Uh, last couple guys here, Matt Manning, Nick Lodolo, and Ryan Zephyrjohn. <laughs> Zephyrjohn, I think, like, almost fits in, like, the Charles King area, where it's, like, a little bit of effort, some relief risk, fastball slider, and it just, like, hasn't quite played. Like, I think that's probably, like, if we're trying to, like, throw these guys in the buckets, that's, like, a very risky subset, where it's, like, relief risk as a high schooler, not a ton of command, not a ton of third pitch, and if the arm speed backs up at all, you're in trouble. I think that's, like, the number one, like, avoid that for a million dollars plus. And then Lodolo and Manning, it's both of them. 6'6", super projectable, super loose and fluid. Obviously Checks a ton the, of boxes. A ton of the boxes, right? And so if we're looking at the, the three guys who have sort of separated themselves from the rest of this group from this class, it is Anderson, Lodolo, and Manning who are there and doing it. Anderson raced there and has been great kevin gowdy jay groom they are in like a lesser sort of but similar bucket i guess you have to put reggie lawson in that group where they just weren't quite as whitley whitley's in there too of like knocking on the door could do it haven't done it yet right although he's not on here but yeah like the super the ones who have the combination of the size the projection and the fluidity have kind of separated themselves from the groom brax garrett like i think the one who fits that mold but hasn't really done anything is Lawson who's been hurt a bunch but the other guys are all like sinkery or had relief risk or were like a little bit bigger earlier than the other ones like Losi and, and Groom. I'm, you're talking about the 2015 All-American game. I'm looking at the 2016 draft class so just all, you know all these guys some right. of them obviously didn't go very high because they went later and I think the three that are not on there would be Whitley and then the two guys we took with the Braves Joey Wentz and Kyle Muller and Wentz I think probably fits into that if you're just going with athleticism and tangibles feel for spin throws pretty hard. He would fit in that group, and it hasn't quite worked yet, but it still might. I think as he's coming off of TJ and is sort of knocking on the door as well, but has taken like a different path. Some of these like Whitley Groom types that look like they were going to be frontline guys and went to sort of snuck up on people. All right, let's move on to the next year. And we'll only do a couple of these. We won't go like all the way through 2021 or anything like that. Just... Oh, and, and one more name I would throw at you that wasn't in the All-American game where you didn't mention was Alex Spees, who was also like another big arm speed, big mm. athlete, good breaking ball. It was like very interesting, but was always sort of like in, in that violent uh, mechanically yeah only and that subset that we're saying we don't love a ton for big money like for 300k i love that kind of guy sure 
which is why I like Seth Keller in this year's draft, because he's that kind of guy. But yeah, over a million dollars, you're looking for a different kind of guy. All right, so 2016 game, Logan Allen. This would have been, another, again, like the heavier which one? bodied. <laughs> yeah, like, God, there are so many Logan Allens. But uh, but yeah, this would have been the one who, <laughs> I was going to say, this is the one who's with Cleveland now. It's like, okay, which one still? <laughs> no. Nope. This is the one who's in the big leagues. The one who's from IMG, not the one that went to FIU. Yeah, and it's funny, like... Um, on the PG thing, it just says, it still says University High School in Florida. Oh, no, that's that's the other one. The other one went to University High School in Florida and then went to FIU. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Wait, so this is the little change-up-y pitchability yeah. Logan Allen, then. This is not, okay, okay. All right, so this Logan Allen is at AA, and he just had a good first start at AA. He's in that, like, four or five starter area. Tanner Burns, also with Cleveland, ended up going to Auburn. This was stockier like less projectable guy, but still was like two to five pitchability, four pitches, like, you know, Boris client from the jump, basically. He was basically the same guy from like junior of high school to today as like, what, a 23, 24 year old. Yep. Blaine Enlow. This is another one who was in the projectable with a breaking ball group who has, you know, recently just had a TJ. He's in the twins system. Mackenzie Gore. There's a lot there. <laughs> so let's talk about this. Like, this is probably the number one topic that I get asked questions about when I am not tweeting about the topic on Twitter. Like, people just want to know what I think. And then if he has a good outing, they want to dunk on me. If he has a bad outing, they want to be like, oh my God, you were right. And I'm just like, I don't know how this is going to go. This one's been so confusing for me. For sure, this is the guy who it seemed like after coming out of showcase summer, between then and draft time, this is the guy who moved the most on my board because the stuff that he was good at at this time was not the type of stuff that you would see in an inning or two on the showcase circuit. Like remember when Colby yeah. Allard was like ripping 94 to 97 for an inning at a time. And I was just like, Oh my God, like we gotta have this guy like in our top five. And you were just like, no, like when he's stretched out, it's not that hard. Okay. Well, Mackenzie Gore during the high school varsity season was sitting in the low to mid nineties. And then late in starts was like reaching back for mid to upper nineties. He was commanding four pitches. He had like a freaky funky delivery that he had, you know, supreme control over, like was looked like the most advanced high school arm in the class. And then he was basically that for the next couple of years in pro ball and was the most dominant pitcher in minor league baseball in 2019. And then stuff just started to seep away seemingly at the alt site. We didn't really know. We just sort of made that inference because the Padres needed guys in that shortened, weird big league season. And when it came time to need a guy, they needed Luis Patino and then they needed Ryan Weathers and were passing over Mackenzie Gore. And it was just like, all right, well, what the hell is going on at the Padres alt site that this is happening? But then also if they would have called Gore up and he wasn't throwing strikes, you'd be like, well, why did you call him up? You guys would know he couldn't throw strikes. Like they kind of couldn't win in that situation. And we didn't really know what was going on because the Padres did not opt into the video sharing. And they were at the University of San Diego, which at that time did not have a TrackMan unit. So even if they wanted to opt into the data sharing and we could try to you know, mine that info from other teams, like what does this guy look like on paper? Like we couldn't if we wanted to. And so there was really no way of knowing what the hell was going on. And it wasn't until... And he was the player in 2021 who I saw more than anybody else. I saw like four or five starts because he was here in Arizona so much rehabbing, just like trying to get it right. I saw an outing again here this spring and he's like back to doing some of the old stuff. Like they took away the ridiculously short, like Lucas Giolito style arm action that he kind of had for a little while last year. His first start this year was great. 
He's still throwing really hard. His slider does seem to be better to me. He's going to have to execute it consistently, which is like a problem because his feel has just seemingly sort of gone away, at least a little bit, to the point where he's not going to be an efficient starter. Like, this isn't like a consistent six, seven inning guy anymore. This is like five and dive type guy. And just like the high speed video, this is like the weirdly specific point where it's like, how, how much more specific can we get? But, like, the ball just isn't coming out of his hand as clean on the high-speed video. Like, the seam uniformity that he had in 19 is not there. Like, this is the guy who was the first dude I shot with this high-speed camera that we bought in 2019. And it was just, you know, spinning out of there with perfect backspin, end over end. The seams were nice and clean coming out. And now it's just, like, kind of tumbling, tilty, weird out of his hand. It's not great. So, I don't know how much of that is just, like, weird, like, touch and feel stuff that has come and gone. I don't know. So, so I think he is... He's like the center of what we're talking about, which is like trying to put guys into a bucket and sort of figure out like a rubric or like some rules about like what kind of high school players that you would feel like comfortable investing in or ranking high or whatever it is. And he is, I think if you get, if you talk philosophically with scouts about the top of the draft, like, hey, what kind of high school pitcher would you feel comfortable taking in the top 10? Which I've had interesting conversations with what I think are traditional guys saying I would not take a high school pitcher in the top 10, which I know was not their stance five years ago. But like empirically, the track record is really bad. If you go all the way to not like prospect list, but like war, it's like, oh, like Green just got there after a TJ. Gore still hasn't really gotten there, although he's obviously knocking on the door. But going back to what I was saying before, the kind of guy people would say they want to take up there would be like the Zach Grinky, where it's like solid average stuff, but he's 18, so you can project it to get better. And then like plus at everything else, maybe plus plus at like command, athleticism, uh, delivery, understanding himself, like all the makeup stuff. Like that's the kind of guy you want. Because I think a lot of people see a lot of risk in like currently throwing hard at that age, like you're going to blow out, which obviously has been borne out a lot of the time. Also, guys not throwing hard doing it. Right. And Gore, I remember seeing with East Coast Pro in Tampa that year, and it was like 89, 92, touch of three, good breaking ball, pitches well, like you're saying. Not a one inning blow it out kind of guy, but once you get the three, four inning outings that you get at East Coast Pro, you're like, oh, I like this. And then in the spring, I saw his last start. I think it was state championship or state semifinal or something. And it was like two to five, touch of seven, everything's flashing plus throwing strikes i think he hit two home runs he was like the best athlete on the field by a mile with like a ton of d1 commits and you're like all right this is that this is the green key guy like he's doing that and then when he got to pro ball like depending on who you talk to if it was like eyeball guys that just got excited about all the sort of green key things they'd be like oh he's plus at everything and then you talk to some data guys and they'd be like eh i mean it's like a 55 fastball and like a 55 breaking ball and like yeah it's really good execution and command but like i'm not sure he has a plus pitch maybe he does maybe he doesn't depends on the day but like there's not a lot of margin for error here but also he's like throwing strikes at a premium level like his entire life but then that's sort of the pitfall with this sort of grinky gore kind of guy where it's like well what if to get an extra tick of stuff they then get a tick less of command and then you got nothing to deal with. And then you look at like sort of Daniel Espino, who is the exact opposite end of guy where like it seems risky because there's so much stuff and like not as much command as you'd like. And that guy's like obviously done well. If anyone's like read your stuff, they're aware of like where that stands right now. Obviously, you don't want to you don't want to typify an entire group with one guy. So that's a little unfair. But I think that's what we're getting at is, all right, there's a bunch of subsets within these groups. There's like the Riley Pint. Just give me stuff and athleticism. I'll ignore the rest. I think, you know, we've moved on from that guy, that type a little bit. But breaking down like the, the I think... You could see this as like one of those trees with like 40 different limbs. The first big split is the Gore Grinky type and the like Espino type as stuff command. Which one do you want? How do you feel about like that? That first two big buckets. How do you feel about that? I just think that the trait that is really running through the ones who have been successful with some amount of, it's obviously that prototypical size and then the fluidity piece of it. So like looking through the rest of these names, like quickly. 
I, I was going to say, I think athleticism and ease of movement should be the first split because I think that is the thing that we're, we're pointing at. Yeah, like just again, like looking at the rest of these ros- these names on the roster, it's like Trevor Rogers, big, 6'5", loose, and fluid. The other stuff, like breaking ball wasn't great. He was he drove 20. He drove up the class as he faced good competition. He's in New Mexico. Right. It was all kinds of other stuff floating around him. Hunter Green, Shane Boz, like even Boz is sort of on the stiffer end. But like you look at guys like Hans Kraus and Seth Corey and some of the bigger guys from this class, like Mitchell Stone and Ben Jordan, who tragically died. Like there was no body projection. Kyle Hurt, same thing. Matt Sauer. Right. Hunter Green, Shane Boz, like... It looks right when you look at the body, the delivery, and then the stuff isn't even necessarily like a huge part of what's at the forefront. And that also would have been the selling point of Hunter Green, who I was scared about because of how hard he threw. And everyone's like, well, it's like, the, you know, it's an 80 arm action, 80 athlete, all this sort of stuff. And it's like, yeah, that probably was the most important part. The 100 is sort of irrelevant. If he is the sort of athlete that you think he is with ease of operation, as we've seen with like high end players, like I think I wrote an ace rankings at ESPN last year. I had 12 aces and then I think there were seven TJs on that list. And then I went and looked at the third starters, not in the article, but separately. And it's like 15% of those guys have TJ. I think there's some idea of like, if you are destined to be an ace, a TJ does not slow you down. If you're destined to be a number three starter, it absolutely can slow you down. And so I think when you look at a guy like Hunter Green, it's like, oh, well, if he's all of these things at an elite level, him throwing hard and maybe having a TJ, like that won't affect him at all. And I think that for me, that's like an illuminating way of looking at it. And so if we're talking about guys for this year's class, for our upcoming draft, who are the high school arms who, based on this cursory review, you are more or less scared of just offhand from having gone through this exercise? So the first guy on everybody's list, pitching-wise, is Dylan Lesko, who you know tweeted out a video if you want to sort of see what it looks like. And then I also reported that he's going to miss his next start with arm soreness, which, you know, fingers crossed, that's all it is. He is, like, I wouldn't say perfect because that's putting too much on him. But he has, he has the sort of shape and power of stuff that Walker Bueller has. He has the, has not been overused the way that Hunter Green has. He doesn't sit 100 like Espino and Hunter Green did. So you would think there'd be like a little less inherent risk because it's like sitting 95. But it is a 70-80 changeup, sits 95 with almost perfect shape to the fastball is the athlete to be able to project the command, I think, in the in the way that we did with Ian Anderson. The breaking ball has plus traits, but he doesn't throw it that much because, again, he's sitting 95 with command and an 80 changeup. Why would he throw a curveball if it's his third best pitch? But it also peaks over 3,000 RPMs and, like, has a plus look to it. And so if you're trying to pick holes in him, it's pretty tough to do. It's like the ones I've heard are guys saying, I haven't seen him throw six innings in a game yet this spring, which I think will happen if he if he comes back, you know, healthy from all this sort of stuff. And that breaking balls is third pitch, which is like not, it's just like you're ranking his stuff. It's not even like a, a criticism. So I, I, I would argue that he might be in that Hunter Green level where if he has a TJ or if he's sitting 98, I'm not even sure it would affect him because I think he may sort of fly above that level because he's so talented. I I think he's the best high school pitching prospect in at least 10 years. But I think you could say Jack, him, Jackson Job, Hunter Green, Mackenzie Gore, Tyon, Bundy, all those guys are like on a similar tier regardless of sort of who you take. And so I think this makes me feel better about him because there is that fluidity, athleticism, knowing how to shape his stuff. He's had a plus changeup since he was like 15. He learned how to pitch before he threw 95. Like he checks every box for me. And so that makes me feel better about it. It's not some of the Riley Pine stuff that I think scares us or some of these like relievery parts that I think scares us as well. Yeah, I entered the the year with Lesko as my number two high school starting pitcher with Brandon Barriera from American Heritage in Florida as my number one. And I saw Lesko 
last summer and had like a Chris Paddock comp basically offhand, like just because I thought the breaking ball was only okay. But the one that he's come out with this spring is like substantially better. I had no idea that it had the kind of spin rate, which, you know, isn't a proxy for quality, but can be a proxy for potential quality if some of the other aspects of and it, it comes with like the right shape too it's not one of those where it's a high spin rate and you're like right. really i didn't see that coming which like happens every now and then and this is the other issue with barriera where it doesn't have that shape like it is a three quarters kind of meh i was gonna say that's the knock with him is the bat missing shape stuff is not there right so yeah like i think andrew dutkanich jr richie these are some some of the other names where it's like, oh, Walter Ford, Walter Ford from Pace High School in Florida, reclassified, he's still 17. These are the guys where it's like, oh, traditional look, body projection, breaking ball, like they are all sort of in this area where some of the other guys who, you know, like Chase Petty last year is the guy for me where I'm like scared because even though he is kind of freaky physically in terms of like how athletic he is and like how shredded he is. The track record for guys who throw that hard and mechanically look like he does is not great. And then of course, like I saw Daniel Espino this spring and, you know, like almost passed out. <laughs> yeah. So, but of course like Espino's delivery is more traditional now. Well, th- and that's why you get, that's why you get lured into taking those guys is like the single most important thing in pitching. If you have to pick one is like arm speed. And when you can throw strikes with that kind of arm speed and it comes with like the spin rate and the, and the curveball and all that kind of stuff, it's like, well, I can see why this is, <laughs> why this is like tantalizing. Cause like, like you're saying, like the Espino stuff, like it sounds religious. Whereas like taking some high school guy for 500K that throws 90 and has an okay breaking ball, but trust me, he's a good athlete. Three years from now, he'll be good. It's like, that's not very exciting. <laughs> like, like I see why people want to do it. And I would also uh, throw in uh, to the conversation, I'm like working on my, my next uh, top 100 for the draft. And I was off Brock Porter, who's at uh, St. Mary's Orchard Park in Michigan. I thought he was had some of the traits I didn't like in terms of fastball swing and miss and change up over breaking ball, breaking ball below. I thought he had some stuff in common with Jerry Kelly in terms of those things. And I just talked to some guys that saw his first outing. Guys were pulling me aside at NHSI and said, hey, what do you got on Brock Porter? And I was like, told him what I just told you. Like, oh, I like it. Big guy throws hard, good change up, like decently throws strikes. Like, you know, there's some stuff there, but like not my kind of guy because of that stuff. And they're like... He's throwing a sinker. It's got heavy run. He added a slider. He's not throwing the curveball anymore. The slider's plus. The, the, the changeup is still good. The strikes are good. Body's good. Delivery's good. His delivery will have had to have changed to be good. Like, yeah. it is well, so Well, th- this violent. is why I bring it up. It's like, I, it's still not perfect. And obviously, like, let's go is perfect either. But if you're, like, lining up, like, how clean is the resume? He now might be the number two high school guy if I, like, pulled the industry, which I'm basically going to do over the next week, uh, ahead of Ferris and Barriera, the two lefties from Florida. But I still don't feel great about any of these guys. Like, even right now, I'm still unsure about them in the same way that, like, I was unsure about Green. I was, like, hesitated over Gore at that time. Like, Job, I think, might be the guy that had the cleanest resume out of all these guys because there just wasn't a thing to get mad about. But, like, yeah, it's throwing these guys in these buckets in the next two months, I think we'll learn a lot more about is the shape of their stuff changed, getting the high-speed video, looking at the delivery, how it's changed, who got bigger and stronger, like, forced Whitley's body composition change in the spring in a way that a lot of people didn't expect. Like, there's still a lot of stuff that'll play out, and I think right now we basically have the names. Like, these are the candidates. I think coming into the spring, I had like 15 guys that were candidates on the high school pitching side to go in the top 50 picks. And now I think I'm like weeding out a couple guys that I think are probably not quite that for whatever reason, the like velo down hurt, command not there, whatever it is. 
And I think now I'm like zeroing in on those eight to 10 guys that I think you really feel good about have a chance to get drafted and sign and go high and working out which ones you like more than the others. Cause like, I think we've learned over the last few years when you talk to teams after the draft, like how wildly teams disagree on what their doctor says about the health of these guys, like projecting their health going forward. It makes you question the medical field altogether. Yes. Like for instance, <laughs> some of the guys we've talked about that we really like, I had a team tell me he was the worst medical on our board. And then I asked the team after they drafted him, they said he was the best medical on our board. And I'm like, right. they had the same stuff to look at and came up with the opposite answer. And, and so like, that's just on the medical stuff, which is like, obviously like subjective because you're trying to project a health future, not a health current. So you can see a little bit why they disagree, but like also imagine like what each room thinks about a guy's delivery and whether you're like he should is worth $3 million or $1 million or if there's an agent they don't want to deal with. Like there's so much variance. Whereas like, you know, high, high school baths, it's like a lot more uniform, like room to room, what guys think about these guys. So like, I, I think we both feel a little more licensed to disagree with the order that high school pitchers go in because it's like everyone changes their mind in six months on these guys. Whereas the other subsets of players, I think are much more steady year to year. All right, so you're working on draft rankings. Anything else people should uh, be looking out for or anything that you've got on the horizon? That's probably the next thing coming. I got a couple things in the hopper for like a month or two from now and some pre-draft stuff. But yeah, nothing anyone needs to know about. Just, you know, keep an eye on my Twitter, Kylie McD and uh, ESPN.com slash MLB. And we'll have uh, we'll have new rankings up soon enough. Do you need people to adopt puppies? Uh, if you'd like to, and they're in the Atlanta, the greater Atlanta area, uh, look up Bosley Spice, just Google them, and uh, you can put an application to uh, adopt especially one of the three comedian named dogs we have, and uh, Belushi, Handler, and Carrot Top. Are you going to have like batches that you name with a theme, or are you going to stick to Oh, we don't name them. Like, they name them. This is oh, from, gotcha. from a litter of 17 dogs, and so they like have to pick a theme to name them all. And then, yeah, like the, I guess the plan is like once once these get adopted away, which uh, if you go on their Instagram, you can sort of see they're available to be, I guess, applied to adopt now. Once they get adopted, then we get like another batch. And, you know, who knows what they'll be like. Cool. All right, well, thanks for coming on. I'm going to do uh, extended stuff here in town for the next little while. I'll probably make a little SoCal run here, although that'll probably be in May. I'm going to Florida in April to see my mom for the first time since 2019 and also do extended stuff and low A and amateur run through thing. And I think I might see Tennessee and Gainesville that weekend too. And so, yeah, we'll just be having consistent prospect stuff at the site and lists. Thanks so much to Kylie for joining me. Oh, Florida. Florida orgs, if you're still listening to this, people in Florida org, someone please send me an extended spring training schedule. The Jupiter West Palm group of teams can't be the only group that has a schedule at this point. Extended started in Arizona yesterday, folks. Like, you Florida teams should have a schedule. What do you mean, you Florida teams? You Florida teams. <laughs> What's going on, Florida? He's shaking his fist right now. If people can I am that, shaking my fist at Florida for the third time in the last six months because this happened with instructs and happened with minor league spring training schedules, too. Like... Come on, ops people in Florida. Should be this should be happening sooner. Daddy's got to schedule a flight. All right. Thanks, Kylie. Yep. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm gonna go play with some puppies now. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing. I've been Eric Longenhagen. Talk to you again soon. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Katie Crawl for joining us and to Kylie McDaniel for stopping by. If you're in the Atlanta area and would like to help rescue a puppy like Kylie has, check out bosleysplace.com. After you've checked out the Fangraphs.com shop, head on over and sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter as well. It is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on for your inbox every weekday. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.